chapter 22, from verses 1 to 19, Abraham is tested. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide, will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to kill, to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And on this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. May the Lord bless us with his word. Thanks, Anna. such an extraordinary passage. There's so much to learn from it. Let us pray. 
our Father in heaven, Lord of lords and King of kings, we thank you for this, your living word. Please speak to us this morning. Apply what we learn by your spirit to the hearts of each one of us according to our need, that we might know you better and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is faith? How do you understand it? How how would you explain it? What is faith? I suppose in simple terms, faith means trusting in Jesus. That's the answer we often start with, isn't it? Trusting in Jesus, abandoning hope in myself. I can't save me. Faith means relying on the mercy of Almighty God. It's personal, it's heartfelt, it's, it's real, it's living. And there's more to faith than meets the eye. Faith can be as tiny as that little mustard seed and yet still be pleasing to God despite all its weakness. Now, the faith of a child is a delight in our father's heart. Just such a small faith and yet so precious to our Heavenly Father. On the other hand, faith can have, as it were, the power to move mountains and yet somehow be useless if the one who wields it lacks love. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Wow, I'm nothing. So let's dig a little deeper. What is saving faith? I mean, saving faith has to be more than just a public assent to God's goodness or his existence. It it isn't just enough just to say, I believe. I mean, what do you believe? Why do you believe? In whom do you believe? Faith must have a purpose and a goal. What is faith? The Bible says that even the demons believe in God and tremble. I tell you, whatever they believe, it won't save them from hell. There is a faith that cannot save you. Have you thought of that? A counterfeit faith. An empty faith, a fruitless faith. Well, the faith that alone saves is higher and wider and richer and deeper than that. Saving faith is the stuff of life itself, this side of heaven. It's not just the beginning of the Christian life, it's the middle and the end as well. And so we come to our lesson today, which is about the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. And it is extremely challenging. Another passage that's extremely challenging. We had one last week. We had another really challenging passage today. Because God commands Abraham to sacrifice his own son. Is this ethical? Is this right? Why would God tell Abraham to do such a thing? The answer is that he's testing Abraham's faith. 
And God does this not only for Abraham's benefit, but for ours also, that we might see and know what real faith is. This is not about dry definitions. This is about fear and trembling. This is about the agony and ecstasy of faith, the doubts, the fears, the hopes, the tears of that journey. God is going to take us up the mountain to show us what real faith is. So I have four points that I'd like to share with you today. First, God's strange command to Abraham in verses 1 and 2. Second, Abraham's strange obedience in verses 3 to 10. After that, we'll look at substitutionary atonement under the heading of the Lord will provide in verses 11 to 14, those wonderful words of promise. And finally, God's unbreakable promise in verses 15 to 19, which is the reward of faith in which God blesses Abraham with an eternal promise and seals it with an oath that cannot be broken because God makes it in his own name. God swears by himself. Again, I want to remind you that our passage today is not about dry definitions. Today we're going to walk with Abraham, feel the dirt under our feet. This is about living faith. God wants you to climb the mountain, hold the knife, and know that God can still keep his promise by raising the dead if that's what it takes. And he wants you to see the substitute and then to experience the full mystery of faith in all its glory. Are you ready for this journey? Are you ready to taste and see that the Lord is good? Then let's begin with our first point for this morning, God's strange command to Abraham. Verse 1. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Now here's the scene. Several years have now passed in Abraham's life, perhaps as many as 10 years. We're not told exactly how many, but we know that quite a few years have passed because in verse 5, Isaac is now called a boy, a young lad. He's probably about eight to ten years old. The other thing you need to know at this point is that Hagar and Ishmael are no longer living with Abraham and Sarah. They've moved on. This is because on the day of Isaac's weaning, Sarah caught sight of Ishmael mocking Isaac and she was so upset that she insisted to Abraham that Hagar and Ishmael should be sent away and that's back in chapter 21. So for all intents and purposes, Isaac is now being raised as an only child by Abraham and Sarah. It's just the three of them now, Abraham, Sarah and Isaac. And God said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Abraham had no reason to think that God was going to challenge him in the way that he's about to. On the contrary, after all the hardships that Abraham has endured, by now he must have been beginning to think that the storms of life had blown over. At last, in his his old age, the sky was blue, the sun was shining, Isaac was laughing. And then there's the familiar voice of the Lord calling his name, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. I wonder what God's going to say to me today. I can guarantee he didn't anticipate this. Then God said, take your son, 
your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Every word must have cut Abraham to the heart. I ask you, you who are parents, you who love your children, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Imagine the horror as God commands you to sacrifice your beloved son, Isaac, with your own hands. Take that son of yours, that precious only one of yours, whom you love, that Isaac, and go and kill him with your own hands devoutly as an offering to me, your God. Wouldn't you protest and say, Lord, surely not. Don't make me do this. How can I murder my own child? But Abraham remains calm. He doesn't panic. He doesn't protest. He doesn't say a word. It really is amazing. He may not understand the how or the why of it, but he knows the who. And that's enough for Abraham. You see, saving faith is a simple faith in that it's simply uncompromising. It's profound, it's deep, but it's it's uncompromisingly simple. So I come to my second point for today about Abraham's strange obedience. The thing about Abraham is that he just does it when God says do it. He just does it when God says do it. But then if this doesn't make you feel at least a little bit uncomfortable, I think something's not right. It should make you a little uncomfortable. Because, for example, say I'm Sarah and and I see my husband beginning to act strangely. What am I going to do? If I catch wind of Abraham's strange plan to sacrifice Isaac, what am I going to say? That's a terrible plan. Are you mad? Don't do that. See, this is the problem with Abraham's obedience. Under normal circumstances, wouldn't you agree, this looks like madness? So how does Abraham hold it together after God tells him to kill his son, Isaac? It seems to contradict everything that he knows about God, about God's character and God's purposes. It it would render the promises of God null and void. It requires a father to betray his own son. It makes Abraham the worst of murderers. It'll destroy his marriage with Sarah, that's for sure. This is indeed a strange obedience to God's strange command. Soren Kierkegaard writes about this paradox in a book called Fear and Trembling in which he explores the limits of faith and our limits of understanding. Kierkegaard lived at a time when Christianity lacked the courage of its convictions. Evangelical Christianity in Denmark was at a low ebb. The miracles of God were doubted by many and faith was definitely out of fashion. So Kierkegaard decided to provoke a conversation about faith by sharing his own reflections on the topic and he began like this. I'd like to read to you how the book begins. There once was a man... 
He had learned as a child that beautiful tale of how God tried Abraham, how he withstood the test, kept his faith, and for the second time received a son against every expectation. When he became older, he read the same story with even greater admiration, for life had divided what had been united in the child's pious simplicity. The older he became, the more often his thoughts turned to that tale. His enthusiasm grew stronger and stronger, and yet less and less could he understand it. Finally, it put everything else out of his mind. His soul had but one wish, actually to see Abraham, and one longing, to have been witness to those events. What he yearned for was to accompany them on the three-day journey when Abraham rode with grief before him and Isaac beside him. He wanted to be there at that moment when Abraham raised his eyes and saw in the distance the mountain in Moriah, the moment he left the asses behind and went on up the mountain alone with Isaac. See, Kierkegaard wants to understand Abraham's faith. And while I don't agree with everything he says, I do agree with him in this. Abraham's faith is truly remarkable. And the more you think about it, the more remarkable it becomes. So over and over, Kierkegaard tries to imagine being with Abraham on the journey, but every time it ends in disaster. In a brilliant piece of writing, he shows us how great Abraham's faith is by suggesting some of the many ways in which that journey to Mount Moriah could have gone terribly wrong. So in one episode, he describes how the young Isaac sees the pain in his father's face just as Abraham is preparing the sacrifice. And horrified, Abraham tries to protect Isaac's childlike faith. He, he claims that the sacrifice is all his own idea. So Isaac holds fast in his faith to God, but the relationship between father and son is destroyed. So Abraham loses his son. In another episode, Abraham does as God tells him and God graciously provides the substitute for Isaac, just like in the Bible. But then afterwards, Abraham can't forgive God for putting him through such an ordeal. So Isaac lives, but Abraham loses his faith. In yet another episode, Isaac gets angry because it's so unfair that God should use him as the bait in this test of his father's faith. So now Abraham lives, but Isaac loses his faith. So there, there are so many ways in which the journey to Mount Moriah could have gone wrong. But Abraham held fast. He didn't stumble. He didn't fall. He didn't hesitate. If you want to ask me how he did it, I'll say to you the answer is found in Jesus Christ. For on Mount Moriah, as Abraham stood there ready to kill Isaac... He beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus himself tells us this in John chapter 8. He said to those who were questioning him at the time, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham perceived Christ from afar. That was the faith that he had. With his eyes of faith, he could see Jesus from Mount Moriah because he could see where the promises of God must lead. So now let's see how many times we can find some glimpses of Christ in our passage today. 
Let's open it up because Christ is richly portrayed in this passage. Reading from verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Well, this, this is like Jesus' journey to the cross. Abraham doesn't allow doubt or fear to distract him from his way. As soon as he's ready, as it were, at God's perfect time, he sets out for the place that God has told him about. And already this is the first significant foreshadowing of Christ in our passage today. This journey to a place of sacrifice. And here's a quick lesson for all of us as we think about this. You know, when God calls him to follow, just like he called Abraham, be sure to make up your mind and do it. Don't delay when God calls you in the way. Abraham got up early the next morning, made preparation and went. So don't delay when God calls you in the way. So on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, the place that God had told him about. And do you know where Mount Moriah is today? I wonder how many of you know that it's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's from chapter 3, verse 1 of Second Chronicles. Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And on the third day, Abraham arrived there with his beloved son. I've got to say, isn't it, this is a big hint about the site of Jesus' death and the timing of his resurrection, which makes this the second major foreshadowing of Christ in our passage today. Now reading on into verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. going up the mountain to sacrifice his son, he says, we will worship and we will come back to you. A foreshadowing of the hope of the resurrection, is it not? So now it's just father and son together going up the mountain of God and would you believe Isaac has to carry the wood that's to be used in his sacrifice, just like Jesus had to carry the wood on his back to the site of his crucifixion. In verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, my father, literally, Abby, daddy, 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 yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Ah, My goodness, Isaac has realised that the most important part of their worship is missing. Got the fire, got the wood, where's the lamb? Daddy, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Do you see how Christ is present in every part of this conversation? Verse 8, Abraham answered... (laughs) What an answer. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
God will provide. God will see to it. This is now the fourth major foreshadowing of Christ in our passage today. And we're not done yet. There's still one more test that Abraham has to pass, the greatest of all in verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And then at the very last moment, when Abraham was about to plunge the blade into Isaac, that son of his, that precious only one of his whom he loved, that Isaac, only then did God say, enough, it is finished. Put away the knife, Abraham. I provided for you a substitute to take the place of your beloved son. I do not require you or anyone to make such a sacrifice, for I myself will come in the fullness of time and I will make it for you. Substitutionary atonement. The Lord will provide. So this is my third point for today and what a glorious point this is. But to appreciate the greatness of this gift, I must tell you, there's quite a bit of evidence in the Bible that at times God's people did sacrifice their own children out of a wrong understanding of God's character. So Jephthah in the book of Judges is just one example. Took his own daughter and sacrificed her because he'd made a vow to the Lord to put to death the first thing that came out the door of his house after he'd had a victory. So how will Abraham respond? On the one hand, he is prepared to obey God's command because he is infallibly convinced that God has commanded it. And there's something unique about Abraham in this, isn't it? I don't think I'd want to say from this, now go and be an Abraham in that regard. But at the same time, this is where I would commend He puts his trust in God's promise, knowing that God will and must provide a way out. For on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And this is Abraham's faith. This is Abraham's God. And the whole point of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is to deal with sin by substituting an animal for the life of a person. Isaac doesn't have to die. For on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And yet, ironically, in the end, there will be one sacrifice that is required. For in the end, no animal sacrifice can deal with the sins that we have. But the angel of the Lord cried out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Jehovah Jireh. Some of you might know the song, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And this is the gospel, isn't it? That in the death of Christ, who is, as it were, God's Isaac, 
The great and final sacrifice for sin has now been given. In the end, it does take a human sacrifice to pay for the sins of human beings, but just once. And the person who does it is actually God come to us in flesh. In Christ Jesus, God came into our world. He went up the mountain. He substituted himself for us. Then he took our death so that we might live forever with him. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And by his dying and rising again, we have eternal life. To which the Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? As we respond to this wonderful truth today, this substitutionary atonement, this exchange that God has arranged, let us first of all simply be thankful to God. All we can do is to say, thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank, thank you, Lord. So let us give thanks and praise to the Lord for Jesus Christ, who is our perfect, sinless substitute. Give thanks to God that he died in your place. Give thanks that he fulfilled all righteousness. Give thanks that he satisfied God's wrath. And now, as we live in light of that wonderful truth, let's persevere through whatever trials God may bring our way knowing that he is using those trials to purify us in order to make us fit for glory in the kingdom of his son. Which brings me to my final point for today about faith's reward. See, it is most fitting that having passed through such a great trial, Abraham should now be blessed by God with such a great reward. This is not something that's earned, but it is something that is offered and received. This is God's unbreakable promise by which all nations on earth will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And so this passage now fills in and fills out and we get wrapped up into it, don't we? The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Well, this is the best promise of all because, because God has sealed it with an oath in his own name. And the significance of this final confirmation of the covenant with Abraham is further explained in the book of Hebrews. A couple of verses to share with you, first from chapter 6. Listen to this. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by than himself, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. See, this is faith's reward. He waits patiently upon the Lord, trusting that he will provide what he has promised. And Abraham receives it. It is a rich reward. 
This is faith's reward. And, and another explanation, filling this out further, is in Hebrews chapter 11, which says this, By faith, Abraham, when tested by God, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. That's what we've seen today. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is a resurrection faith, a faith that's stronger than death. And I ask you to consider how happy Abraham must have been on that extraordinary day in these extraordinary circumstances. And also, how happy must Isaac have been to see his father's faith so completely vindicated? There is no breach in any relationship. Father and son are together. Abraham holds on to his faith and is rewarded. Isaac maintains his faith in the Lord. And God shows how glorious he is. But how they must have rejoiced together in this experience of redemption and salvation. How they must have celebrated God's providence to them. Wondered at the majesty of God's plan of salvation for the world. I mean, if God can do this, he can do anything. For truly on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So in conclusion, I want to come back to the question I began with this morning. What is faith? Well, I think we can appreciate more fully now what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, this is the most famous definition of faith in the Bible, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Let me say that again. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is more than just a feeling. Faith has an objective element to it, which is Christ and him crucified. And many people think that faith is just a private opinion. You have your beliefs, I have mine. It's all a subjective thing. No, they're dead wrong. There is much more to faith than meets the eye. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's the older translation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It was this faith in the promises of that God our God, which allowed Abraham to bring Isaac up the mountain and it was this faith that allowed Abraham to bring him down the mountain alive and home again. Genuine faith, lived out, walking through the trials of life, this faith has a weight to it. It may be as tiny as a mustard seed, yet if Christ is the object of your faith, then nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's the faith of Abraham, and may it be your faith and my faith too, because this is the faith that saves. What is faith? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So then, saving faith means trusting in Jesus as your substitute and saviour. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Make Jesus the substance of your faith and you will receive from God the reward of your faith, even eternal life. And then living faith. Well, living faith means living like Abraham and being prepared to surrender everything to follow Jesus. In the end, living faith is faith that trusts God like Abraham did. He just did it when God said, do it. He just did it when God said, do it. And so must we. Which leads to persevering faith. Persevering faith is faith that endures the trials of life by keeping our focus on the risen Lord Jesus. True faith will always be strengthened by trials. And I might say that strong faith is often tested by strong trials. But persevering faith is the faith that sees the journey through, come what may. It's a gift of God that we ought to be praying and asking for. Saving faith is a living faith. It's a persevering faith. And finally, it's a joyful faith. It's the kind of faith that knows what it is to be loved by God. And you can't put this into words. The faith that alone saves is higher and wider and richer and deeper than this. It's Abraham and Isaac coming down the mountain together, rejoicing. A laughing, joyful faith. The faith that knows the blessing of God and the reward that he brings to those who trust in him. Joyful faith gives thanks and praise to God for keeping all his promises and it looks forward to a life lived together forever in the glorious kingdom of God's Isaac who is our saviour Jesus Christ. And then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Praise the Lord. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us what faith is through the trial of faith that you put Abraham through. We've seen today how it foreshadows everything that you accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. We see our place like Isaac, with the sins of the world upon us, the sins that we commit that cause you grief. And we are helpless and bound by them and unable to be set free, but Lord, you provided a substitute, and by your grace, you unbound us and unchained us and forgave us and clothed us and healed us and gave us new and ever-living life that we might live forever with you. Oh Lord, we thank you most of all for our substitute and our saviour, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen.